morning, church, as we have the joy to worship him this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus 4, 5, and 6 this morning. Exodus chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. As I think of these passages of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, I'm reminded of a conversation I had years ago over lunch with a friend of mine who was going through a, a rocky point in his marriage. There have been some poor decisions, admittedly poor on his end, that had come to sort of the shrapnel of consequences in his family and in his own marriage. And God, much like the prodigal son story, utilized the difficulty of his life to get his attention. Have you ever been there? Some of your decisions that you wish that you could take back, God in his providence uses to get your attention and so the that was where he was, and for the first time in his adult life, he began to take his, his life and faith seriously at the same time. Patterns of sin that had plagued him for years, he confessed, repented of, and was trying to move past. For the first time in his adult life, he was reading the Word of God, praying with his family and for his family, wanting to lead them into church. And he met with me, and he was disappointed. He was discouraged. He was confused because he said, Hey, David, when I started following God, instead of things getting better, they went from bad in my marriage to much worse in my marriage. With, with God by my side, it seems as if my wife and I are further apart from each other. And add to that, now that I've been following God, and I'm wanting to take my faith seriously. The one thing in life that I have not had to worry about, which has been sort of the financial solvency of my company and my life, it is faltering around me. And so I feel as if I can lose my family in one hand and lose my future of, of my work employment in the other hand. And with God by my side, things have gone from bad to worse. We talked. That your faith in Jesus doesn't put a bubble of immunity around you from trials in life. We talked about how different uh, characters of the faith in the Bible went through difficulty and they were right in the center of God's will and purpose. I do not remember, but I could have pointed him to the very chapters of Scripture that we come to this morning. Because Moses is a walking companion for my friend. And I dare say that, that Moses is a walking companion for any person that is here today that has ever felt that they're in the center of God's will and things in their life have gone from bad to worse. Moses was there. Do you remember how he got there? God meets him, the mountain of God, speaks to him out of a bush through the fiery flame, says, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he says, well, I've got a couple of reasons. I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not really good with words. They're not going to believe me. And so God, he, he takes away, he, he dismantles every argument that Moses has. And he ultimately says, I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to give Aaron, who's going to be a spokesperson. So off Moses goes to Egypt. And he and Aaron stand before the elders of the Hebrew people with this great announcement. Guess what? God is coming and he has heard your cries. And he is going to bring deliverance. And so you can imagine their response was, hooray! 
Yay! I mean, we read it like this in chapter 4, verse 31. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So the Hebrew people's response to God's faithfulness and the announcement that Moses and Aaron are coming back to Egypt to say it is met with absolute worship. And of course it would be because you have a, a young Hebrew mother who looks out at her two children thinking for the first time in their life, in her life, that they could have a future that isn't in the bondage of Pharaoh and the Egyptian slavery that she's experienced and her mother experienced and her grandmother experienced and her great-grandmother experienced. Of course they bowed their heads in worship because you can imagine a, a young Hebrew teenager who wakes up and he, and he feels this pain in his back that never goes away. He looks at his hands and, and they're calloused with the work and the toil that he experiences day in and day out. So you can imagine they bowed their heads in worship because they looked at the future and for the first time in their life, the future is bright because God is on their side. Chapter 5 begins, and here's the showdown. The showdown we've been waiting for, the showdown that we know is going to come, where God comes and meets uh, Pharaoh through the messenger of Moses and Aaron. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the conflict, the culmination of all of God's promises to his people. They come to this fruition when Moses and Aaron, they step into the palace, and we read verses 1 through 2 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron now, at least in the scriptural passage that we have before us, they show up in the palace without any disclaimers, without any hesitation, without any fire print, and they say, Let my people go. That's what the Lord says to you, Pharaoh. here's what Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, moreover I will not let Israel go. He, Pharaoh doesn't just say no. He mocks Moses and Aaron. He doesn't just say no. He says, I don't, I don't, you, you speak of this God who has given you this message to let these people go. I'm not going to let them go because I don't even know the God you're talking about. But it goes from bad to worse because Pharaoh says, hey, you know, I'm glad you came here. And so for the reward of your courage, we read in verse 7, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron about the people, the Hebrew people, the slaves, they shall no longer give the people, or excuse me, the Egyptians shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. But let them, the Israelites, go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks, verse 8, that they made in the past, you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. So not only does Pharaoh say, no, no I'm not going to let them go. But in actuality, he says, I'm going to take what I used to give to these Hebrew slaves as the raw material to make the bricks and the stones that would uh, feed the architectural empire of, of Egypt of that day, he says, I'm going to make them go look for it. 
And I'm not going to reduce the quota for the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the month. So I'm not backing away. They got to go find what they're going to compose these bricks and stone with. And I'm not letting off the quota. So what has happened for the Hebrew people? They've gone from bad to worse. Well, you can imagine that the Hebrew people, after hearing this, would have said, well, good try, Moses. Aaron, thank you for helping us out. It's, all, it's a thought that matters, right? A for effort, right? Mm-mm. You read it here with me. In verses 20 through 23, they met Moses and Aaron. This is the people of God who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, again, the people of God, the Hebrew people, the Lord look on you and judge. The Lord judge you too. Because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. We smell in the palace of Pharaoh. We stink in the palace of Pharaoh. And you did it. But more than that, you put a sword in their hand to kill us. Thanks a lot. It's gone from bad to worse. If we didn't have enough problems before, you come in here, we hadn't seen you, Moses, in 40 years, and you come promising that God has spoken to you in the mountain, and then you just stroll up there in Pharaoh's palace, and you come back to us, and now we're not only slaves, but today we have received a death sentence. Thanks a lot. Then Moses, verse 22 He turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Not one iota. You told me to come back here. I told you I didn't want to come. I told you I didn't want to come, and you sent me back here. I went to Pharaoh. I did exactly what you told me to do. And now look. Why did you even send me? I told you this was going to happen. You ever been there? Have you ever been there? Of course you haven't. And way Moses and Aaron are. Of course, we've never had sort of the cosmic weight of a whole people coming out of slavery upon our words. Of course, that responsibility you will not bear, I will not bear. Of course, we haven't walked even a step in Moses' sandals. But, but I tell you this, they, they might have a similar feel at times in your life. The details are different. But it very well may be that they're It's been a time in your life where you said to God, why did you even send me? Maybe you were at church years ago. The pastor was talking about Jesus' words that if you have something against your brother, you have something against your sister, lay your offering at the altar, go and be reconciled with him, come back and offer your offering. So the, the message was being preached and Your family member, your friend, their image came immediately in your mind. And there have been years of you and them being estranged from one another. They've been hurtful words. They've been slammed doors. But it's almost as if God was speaking to you in that service. 
You need to take the initiative. You need to go. You need to say, I'm sorry. You need to uh, seek the Lord's guidance in this. And you don't just rush out of the church and run by and knock on the door. You don't do that. You, you sit down with somebody. You pray through it. You seek wise counsel. You find a neutral spot. You meet that person for lunch. And then you're sitting eyeball to eyeball. You had not seen them in years. And, and you think to yourself, well, this is going okay. You're able to catch up on the kids. To bemoan all that has changed in the midst of COVID. There's so much common ground. But then you go there. And you peel off the scab. You say something. They take it the wrong way. The voices begin to raise. And you say to yourself, not again, not again. And you thought you were going to come. And you were going to end with this hug of reconciliation. And you're going to end with these tears that everything is great. But you're leaving, not with tears of reconciliation, but tears of further hurt. And you're saying to God, why did you even send me? That went from bad to worse. Crossroads in your life. There's a job opportunity before you. You pray about it. You seek wise counsel. You and your family are on the same page. You step out and it is a huge step of faith. Eight months into it, you realize this isn't going to work out. The first time in your life, you look up to God and say, why did you even send me? Financially, things have gone from bad to worse. You're sitting in a pew, you're sitting in a Sunday school class. Life group class, talking about sharing your faith with a neighbor, a coworker, and every time that comes up, and it comes up often, and every time it comes up, that neighbor, that coworker, their face comes to you, and so you step out to do it, but you don't do it rashly. You think about it, you pray about it. The right time is there. You have the common ground. Spring training has started. You talk about baseball. You talk about the kids. And then all of a sudden, you make that switch and you begin to talk about what the Lord has done in your life. And you see in their eyes that their eyes glaze over. And it's almost as if they don't do it, but it's almost as if they're visibly walking away from you. And you think to yourself, this is not how I thought this was going to end. I thought if you sent me here that they had to be receptive to it. And you feel the awkwardness in the conversation and you try to land the plane and move on. But you think to yourself, God, why did you even send me? This went from bad to worse. You know, in America, we don't have categories that can say that you can be in the center of God's will and fall flat on your face. We don't have categories. We don't have a theology of failure because we think that if you're in the center of God's will, it's always up, up, and away. 
If you're in the center of God's will, he's always going to wrap it up in what seems to be the estimation of human success. So whatever you do that God calls you to, of course, God, we think wrongly that he is obligated to wrap it up in a nice red bow perfectly of human success. But do you know this, that you can be faithful to God and not see immediate signs of fruitfulness in and around you? That you can be faithful to God and it not feel or be successful? That's what it was for Moses. He's doing exactly what God has called him to do. And by all human estimation, it was the worst thing that he could have done. By all the information that he has before him, he has done something that has just made his Hebrew brethren, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, in the worst place that they've been in centuries. Things have gone from bad to worse. From all estimations, he is a failure at this moment. But actually what we discover is that he's at the very center of God's will. We end chapter 5 and he's asking the question, why did you send me? And notice that God speaks in chapter 6. You Notice the change with the conjunction, but, chapter 6, verse 1, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now that you have fallen flat on your face, now that things have gone from bad to worse for your people, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, he will send them out. Well, you, you didn't talk to the Pharaoh I just talked to. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Really? Verse 5, Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. I haven't forgotten you, Moses. I haven't forgotten the covenant. So therefore, say to the people of Israel, verse 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I'm the Lord. Moses says, why did you send me? God says, I'm the Lord. Moses says, this isn't working out. God says, I am the Lord. Moses says, God, guess what? That was an absolute failure. God says, the plan is going just like I want it to go. Boy, it's a good reminder, isn't it? That his ways are not our ways. That in the business of trying to interpret how God and why God is uh, allowing things to happen in our life and how God is working all things together for the good of those who love him or called according to his purpose, his ways are just not our ways. And we're limited in our scope because from all human perspectives, Moses is a failure and things are not going well. But God tells him, guess what? You're exactly where you need to be, doing exactly what you need to do. That's a good reminder. That's a good reminder for those of us that are here that at times want to say to God, I've stepped out and I did what you told me to do and it didn't work out like I thought it was going to. So guess what, God? I'm throwing in the towel. I'm raising the flag of surrender. 
It's a good reminder to all of us that are here that at times when we follow him, he will lead us to paths that are bumpy and rocky down the road. And that bumpiness and that rockiness of the journey that we're on oftentimes is a very testimony that we're exactly where we need to be in his plan. William Carey had to learn that the hard way. It's not always a household name, but he should be. In every Baptist church, we should know the name of William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement. If you don't know William Carey, that's okay. Here's William Carey for you. Rose up in 18th century England, has this overwhelming call upon his life to take the gospel to the nations. The Great Commission are not just words on the page, but it's the very heartbeat of his life. He tries to create a missionary sending organization, and he's rebuffed from every side. He stands up at church one time, and he says, God is calling me to go to India. He is surrounded by pastors. One elder pastor stands up and says, William Carey, sit down. If God is going to save the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Not to be deterred, though. He, he wasn't deterred by all the rebuffs, and he stepped out, and there were tremendous obstacles in William Carey's life. Drops out of school at the age of 12, becomes a shoemaker's apprentice. He has this amazing felicity with language. He feels called. He continues to go forward for ordination to be sent as a missionary at the age of 16. He stands up before these ministers to preach his ordination sermon, and he falls flat on his face, and they don't ordain him. Three years later, he's ordained, scrapes up enough funds, heads off to India with his wife and young children. In the first two years of his missionary endeavors in India, William Carey and his wife would bury two of their children. They're struck by malaria, lack of funds, Resistance from, from all of the enterprises around them, the sort of the, the Amazon of that day, the British East India Company opposed their work in Calcutta and they just booted them out of there. Get out of here. He spends his life because he has this gift of language to translate the New Testament into the indigenous languages of the people. In 1812, there's a fire and years of his work goes up in flames. His wife suffers immensely. No other way to say this. Unspeakable grief that she bears. It leads to bouts of psychosis that she suffers through. There are times in this small Indian village where she would chase her husband, hurling curse, curse words at him, accusing him of affairs. She's broken by the distance from home. She's broken by the grief around her. Praise God in the 21st century that if if that was occurring, we, we could say, come home. Well, they couldn't come home then. You, you, you couldn't send a, a counselor, a Christian psychologist to be able to work through the grief. They, she had to bear all of that in the midst of the pain and the difficulty, but they persevered in the midst of it. And surely God would reward them for the perseverance. 
Seven years in India. They lose children. The struggles of his brine. Hundreds of people come to Christ, right? Zero. After seven years in India, zero converts. After seven years in India, zero churches planted. In seven years in India, zero missionary stations. In seven years in India, I, if I was living there, would have uh, written to William Carey, maybe God is not in this as you thought he was. Come home, William. Come home for the sake of your family. Come home because your faithfulness has not led to fruitfulness. But he didn't come home. William Carey stayed there for 41 years. And he knew something. He knew something. That faithfulness doesn't always lead to immediate, recognizable fruitfulness. That God calls us to be faithful, and he's not all that concerned that at times it doesn't look successful. Do you know the rest of the story of William Carey? Do you know that when we look at the 41 years and the hundreds of years after his life, the legacy of perseverance that occurred because of a brother and his family that suffered immensely, there is no denying that, but the faithfulness of what God did in and through this person, 41 years in the midst of obstacles, 41 years in the midst of tears, 41 years in the midst of grief, and there were 34 different translations of the New Testament produced in the indigenous languages of those people. After 41 years, there was a college that was started there. There were hundreds of schools that were established there. There were churches that were planted after those 41 years. There were 19 mission stations that were planted there in India. And there were hundreds of converts. After seven years, zero. 41 years, hundreds of converts. William Carey? The father, as we know, the, the father of the modern missionary movement, he lived out the truth that Moses is experiencing, that following God's call isn't always, and sometimes it's not at all smooth sailing. That you can be in the center of God's will, following him in the journey of your life, and it be awfully bumpy. Now, this should not surprise us. I, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. Because the person who most perfectly lived out God's will here on earth, the person who at every moment of his life was in the center of God's will, had at the end of his life the people closest to him betray him, at the end of his life had the religious leaders of the day ultimately falsely accuse him, and he died. as a common criminal, hung on a cross and left his body there to rot in the sun. That the person who lived that life and died that death 
was at the center of God's will, even in the midst of the greatest human injustice that has ever occurred. And if God, the Father, through the power of the resurrection, can accomplish salvation through his son's death, how much more so can he redeem the bumpy parts of your journey? If God can take the greatest human injustice that has ever occurred and bring about it the greatest good, the salvation of all who would turn to him, if he can do that with his son's death, how much more so can he do that with the bumpy parts of your life? So take heart, Christian. There are going to be times in your life where you step out and you fall flat on your face. There are going to be times where you step out and you feel as, as if you are a failure. There are going to be times in your life where you step out and you feel all alone, but be reminded you very well might be right where God wants you to be. In the center of his will. Even when it feels like you are falling and failing. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we trust you even when we cannot discern how you're working good of the circumstances that are around us. I pray for that family that is going through this bumpy, rocky road of their life. And they feel as if they're all alone in the midst of it. Their prayers for a daughter, their prayers for a son to be brought home, to be reconciled to you. They feel as if they're falling on deaf ears. Remind them to take heart. For the person that is here that has been praying for that father or that mother to come to Christ. And they feel as if all their conversations are pushed away. Give them the strength to take heart and to not give up. For that person that's a teenager that is here today, that is desiring to, to live a life of holiness, to honor you, but feels all alone at school. Feels misunderstood, left out at times. Feels as if they're not taking the steps that they need to take and, and don't know exactly where to turn. May you encourage them that you're with them and leading them and guide them. May we trust that your will for us includes the bumpy, rocky places of the journey. And that even when we can't see your hand, even when we can't feel your hand, remind us today that you're there with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>